Good morning. Welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is Sunday, June 12th. I know it says scripture in here, but this is not actually scripture. This is my own words. I thought I'd point that out. It's easy for us to forget in this modern era that for most of scripture's history, most people never read it. Instead, the few who could read stood in front of others and read them aloud, often in full. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy was read to the entire group. And if you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, it's not a short book. But someone stood up there and read the entire thing aloud. So it is true with pretty much all of Scripture. It was never meant to be read, but to be read aloud to others, especially the epistles. Even in a society where maybe a few more people could read with copying technology, it meant you were sitting there making copies for everyone to read. So usually one copy would appear, someone would stand in front. The... Uh, so we read scripture aloud in service. In that same tradition, reading it aloud and then talking about it. But as I did last year, I want to read the entire book aloud from beginning to end. Of course, I don't want to keep you here for two hours as I read the entirety of Romans. I think some of you would start looking at your watches a lot more often than usual. And if not more than one would probably fall asleep. It is a little cooler in here than last week, so maybe not as many. Anyway, so we will read Romans from beginning to end. It will take us four Sundays. But of course, even that, that doesn't help us exactly, because Romans was written for, well, the Romans, not us. Not us in our modern-day problems, but they do speak to our modern-day problems as all the letters, as all of Scripture does. It talks to issues that humanity has dealt with since the beginning of time. So as I did last year as we read 1 Corinthians, I will be reworking it, putting in context that would have been understood by the Romans back into, into our language, adding in and moving things around, but still basically following the Scriptures. If you were to open Romans today and follow along, you'll see that I'm holding pretty close to the original, just changing and updating a little bit. Not quite a paraphrase, but similar. And why Romans? Well, Romans is arguably the most influential book in the entire Bible. I know that's kind of crazy to hear, but think about it. Romans was the book that convinced Augustine that Christianity was the proper way to go, and he converted. Augustine, who basically built the foundation of the theology of the church up until the Protestant Reformation, and continues to be a major influence and foundational stone. Once we hit the Protestant Reformation, we had uh, uh, Martin Luther, whose theology of justification by faith alone, the centerpiece of Protestant theology, comes from Romans. John Calvin, from which we have Calvinism and Presbyterianism and, and, and Baptist movements. Yeah, a lot of it comes from Romans. 
John Wesley of Methodism, Romans, Karl Barth, the man who transformed the church through the 20th century, Romans. So much of what we believe is based in this book. But for all of that, we continue to be a little confused by it. It's a dense book. When preparing for this sermon today, for every verse or two that I read, I mean, I would be reading in the scripture and then transforming and rewriting, I would have to read three or four paragraphs just to explain the meanings behind the verses. It's incredibly dense. But of course, in our modern world, we don't like dense. We don't like things that challenge us to think in four or five different ways all at the same time. So instead, we paint things with broad strokes. Broad strokes leave Romans lacking. Broad strokes is what has led Romans to be used as a bludgeoning device, especially against the Jewish people for millennia. That was not Paul's meaning. It was not his purpose. And it's not the meaning of the book of Romans itself. So we begin. We begin, we examine Paul, we examine the Roman church, we examine their problems and what that means for today. I know many of you know this, but I'll do a really quick run through. Saul, of course, I mean, Paul, of course, was born Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee in the tradition of Gamaliel, the elder who protected the early church from the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. Saul, however, didn't follow his teacher's example and instead persecuted the church, even being there at Stephen's stoning. But Saul has his come to Jesus moment, or perhaps Jesus had his come to Saul moment, as Jesus is the one who appears. Saul is blinded, is given his sight back as he finds Christianity. He starts using his Latin name, Paul, which means small or little. There in Damascus, he begins his movement in Christianity. He starts spreading the gospel or the good news throughout the, the lands of what we call today Turkey and Greece and throughout a lot of little islands and small nations in between. Eventually, he is imprisoned in Judea where he appeals his case to the emperor. So he's transported to Rome, where he lives in, under house arrest until his eventual beheading. His letter to the Romans was unique. He did not start or bring the church to Rome, as he did in pretty much everywhere else he went and to everyone else he wrote to. Instead, there was already a church there. It was thriving in the many small synagogues that dotted the city. However, Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from the city, or at least the influential ones, sometime in the 40s. Honestly, I, I read like four or five documents that all said, we have no idea when this happened, only it happened. So, needless to say, the Jews were kicked out, including uh, Priscilla and Aquila, the tent makers that Paul lives with in Corinth. While they were, before they were kicked out, the Christian movement had started in the Jewish synagogues and brought in many Gentiles. So as the Jews were kicked out, the Gentiles continued to gather, continued to meet and grow, and the church was becoming increasingly Roman and less Jewish. 
Year 54, Claudius died, the restrictions on Jews ended, and they came back to Rome. And we ended up with a division. The new Christian Jews were unhappy with the new Christian Gentiles. The Christian Jews called the Gentiles as those who have lost the true faith, that have lost the way that God had called them as ones who ignored the Torah law. The Christian Gentiles, of course, were incensed that their faith was being called into question and retorted that it was the Christian Jews who had lost their way. I'm not going to go into all of it, but needless to say, they were actually calling each other quite rude names. This left those many small now house churches in disarray and the larger Christian movement in Rome divided. We don't know how this news reached Paul. He was probably living in Corinth on his third mission at this time. And it simply may be that living in a major port city, he just got the news from friends and travelers. From friends and travelers. But he decided to put in his two cents. It may have been that he was simply right, going to plan to write the Romans anyway. He was going to make a trip to Iberia, that is modern-day Spain, and stop off in Rome, and he wanted them to help him financially and to give him a place to stay. But after hearing all this, he, he added more. He ended up becoming probably his masterpiece in terms of theology. Theology. Paul does make it to Rome as a prisoner, as I said earlier. He never made it to Iberia. A couple, two things I do have to talk about before we we dive into it later. Two major ones. First is honor and shame. Back in those days, how your community viewed you was extraordinarily important. Even more so than today. It mattered whether people saw you as honorable. It was a bad thing if they saw you as shameful. After all, that's all you had going for you in your community. This was well before the days where you could check someone's three numbers and see what their credit score was. So we will be hearing a lot of honor and shame language throughout the, th- uh, the, the book as he is alluding to this, this how people see you and how you are treating others. The other is the word law. Of course, today we think of law, we think of the law, you know, the rule book. And when we think of the law in terms of scripture, we think of the Torah, or the Torah law, Torah meaning law anyway. Paul often will kind of switch back and forth between referring to the law, talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But he also will mean the laws that are found throughout there, and that's confusing enough as it is. He's going to add a third law in here in which he is talking about the natural law in which all peoples agree to. Kind of the idea of, yes, Christianity teaches us to love our neighbors, to treat others as we wish to be treated. You know, the rules of hospitality, of kindness, of, of love. But we aren't the only ones. We find it in Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, Shintoism, I mean, any of the isms, most of them have this kind of rule. 
And Paul alludes to that, that there seems to be a natural law in which all people understand that, you know, whether they know God or not, they recognize God's work through the world. And so, to kind of differentiate, I'll be calling the given law is the law from Moses, and the natural law is the law from that we, we as humans can naturally pick up on. Just to clarify that, not be overly confusing when it's law, 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 law later. Last of all, why do we still read it today? We don't have the same problem as the Jews in Rome did. We are not a church divided between the Christian Gentiles who say, we are free and Christ. We do not have to follow the Torah law and the Jewish Christians who are saying we have to follow the law perfectly. Well, because we still deal with that same argument. Even if we aren't Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, we still are having these arguments about how we are to follow the rules and what that means. So I invite you as we listen to Romans in a little bit to hear how that message written so long ago to a people that no longer exist, how that's still meant to be lived today. I know last year um, when I did 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is, is really a series of uh, five essays that have been put together addressing different problems. Corinthians is not so easily broken apart, but there are some overarching kind of sections within the book, so we'll be doing it in just four parts. But this means I won't be able to, last year I, my play was that I, I would read the letter that Paul had received that he was responding to, and I can't really do that as well with Romans. So here we go. Romans chapter one through four. Greetings. My name is Paul. I am a servant of Christ Jesus and called out to be one of his message bearers that brings the good news. The good news that you all know, that the prophets of old wrote about, and we in the Jewish faith have reserved, preserved in our scriptures. The good news of God's Son, descendant of David's in flesh and God's descendant in spirit. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who showed his place in our existence through his resurrection. It is through him that we are given grace in the ministry to bring all peoples into his way, those peoples including all of you. Brothers and sisters of Rome who are beloved by God and called the Lord's, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I offer my thanks for all of you and on behalf of all of you and myself. For I have heard through the grapevine of your faithfulness. I wish I could come to visit all of you so that we may strengthen one another in faith and so that I could impart upon you some of what I have learned in my faith journey. However, as it is now, my plans have not worked out. My obligations have prevented me from traveling any further west. But I have my obligations to you as well. 
For I have been charged by God to carry the good news to all people of all nations, of all walks, no matter where they come from or how well they have been educated. And Rome, Rome is the center of the world where all peoples meet, and I wish to be there with you in the thick of it. I am not ashamed of this good news, for in it there is no such thing as shame, only honor. In the good news is the power to change those who believe, for in the good news is salvation. Yes, it is true, at one time this was only given to the Jews, but it has now been opened to everyone who believes, no matter their blood or status. In this good news, we find God making all things right and just from beginning to end, from faith to faith. As the prophet Habakkuk wrote, the righteous will live by faith. Since the beginning of time, God has been known by all peoples. God was revealed through God's divinity and unending power. It is obvious to anyone who has eyes. But despite this, despite God's presence, God's blessings and power, people did not think, nor did they give glory and honor to God. Those who are concerned with honor and shame, shame our creator. And so we see God's anger and punishments raining down upon humanity, especially on those that bite their thumbs at God and suppress the truth. They are foolish, though they claim to be wise. They claim to be honorable, but they are in fact shame-filled. They have turned from the glory of God and God's creation and instead worship the work of their own hands. God has let them go, has left them to give in to their shameful wants. They worship their own bodies and lust. They think that, they, that, they think that it is good to dishonor others and calling all shame glorious. They purposely forget the ways of God calling it foolish to follow. So God has let them be filled with their foolishness. They are like dogs who cannot stop eating the leavings of others. They are filled with fecal personalities. They are depraved. They lie and slander. They break all the rules of respectful living. They are arrogant. They are unfilial. They are greedy, they are malicious, they are untrustworthy and incapable of love and doing justice. They know that what they do is evil, and they laugh, and they think it is funny, and they encourage others to join them. I know that some of you are nodding your heads in agreement. You are saying, yes, Paul, you have hit the nail on the head. You have named the problems that are happening here in our city, here even in our gatherings. Stop that. You do not get a free pass. You are just as guilty as all of them. 
you are guilty of sinful behavior. For all peoples have rejected God. All peoples have this sinful root in themselves. Only God can sit in judgment of others. Do you think that you are distracting God from your own sins by pointing out that of others? No. God sees you for who you really are. God sees what you do. God sees what you think. But God still loves you. But this is not the love of someone who just lets you do whatever you want. No, this is the love of a parent. A parent that corrects ill and wrong behaviors. God's love and kindness is one that leads others into living God's way towards salvation. Follow that way. Stop judging. Every time you point your finger, three others are pointing back at yourself, condemning you. Trust that God will make all things right according to God's divine judgment. Instead of judging others, you should be focusing on doing what is right. For it is this work and through this work that we will gain honor and immortality in our own community. And it is through this work that we gain the eternal life from God. Those that reject this, who reject God, who worship themselves, God will handle them. Don't worry about it. We have all seen God's wrath, but we've also seen God's blessings, first through the Jews and then through the Gentiles. And God is not biased to one or the other. No one gets this free pass. True. Once upon a time, my people, the Jews, we were giving God's teaching, the law. It was given to us and us alone. And because of that, we and we alone are judged by it. Those who were not given this law are not held by its standards. We Jews are not given special exemptions under this given law. We do not get a get-out-of-jail-free card. We have to actually follow it if we wish God to declare us righteous. The other nations, they follow God's natural law. Though not handed down through Moses, though not handed down from a mountain full of smoke, fire, and lightning, it is the intrinsic righteousness that we have seen that is sown right into the very fabric of our world, right into the very fabric of our hearts. They naturally know wrong from right. And it is by this that they will be judged. And that judgment will come on the fulfillment of the good news when Jesus, the anointed one, will return. So brothers and sisters Jews, if you take pride in our heritage, if you are dependent upon the gift of the given law, and you boast of the Lord, live into that. Fully embrace it. It is a good thing. But do not claim to be wise. Do not claim to be the honorable teachers of children and fools while not learning from and following that given law. Do not preach against immorality while you are immorally engaging in it. 
Do not, I mean, sorry, reject hypocrisy in your own lives. Do not bring dishonor to God. You have been marked as gods through circumcision. But that is only a physical mark if you break the given law in body, heart, or mind. If those who lack the mark follow the Lord's requirements, then they will be considered circumcised. Those who follow the way of God are more righteous than those with the mark of Abraham's covenant that do not follow the law. The mark only counts if you are not a lawbreaker. Be circumcised in your hearts, for God then will praise your righteousness. And that is the only praise that really matters. I know that some of my brother and sister Jews are probably taking affront at my words. Look, please stay, listen. Don't cut me off just yet. Let me pretend I'm having a conversation as if I am standing there with you all right now. One of you may shout, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And I would answer you, much and many. God blessed us Jews with the holy words, with the ways before all others. We are born with an advantage that we are introduced to the way of salvation from the moment of our first cry. And through it, and uh, by our first cry, though it is by God's blessing, not our own intrinsic righteousness, that we gain this blessing. What if then some are unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's righteousness? Absolutely not. Look, people are not faithful. We know that to be true, but God, God always is faithful. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath against us? Wait, are, are you saying that by being the given law and, un, and not being able to follow it, that God has set us up to be failures, that we are in fact cursed by the given law? No! Look, it is we who could not follow it. We are the ones who broke the covenant over and over. But God always comes back. God always saves and redeems. How could a God who curses us, who sets up evil in this world, be perfect? Because God is perfect. How could the judge, the judge of all things, be anything other than perfect? If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Oy vey, are you, I think you Latins have a, a, a phrase for this. Reductio ad absurdum, reducing to absurdity. You are doing that by claiming that we ought to sin so that we bring about more of God's righteousness. You have carried this point to absurdity. That is not the point of this. That is not the point of salvation or grace. 
if you really believe that this is a valid way to live, then, well, all the condemnations that people make of you is right. What then shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Can we as Jews plead anything special before God? Nope. Nothing. You've got no special argument. Jews and Gentiles are equal before God. We are all under the power of the sin of this world. And let me remind you that the ancient writers, the prophets that we have studied our entire lives, have left for us a knowledge since ancient times that no one is righteous naturally. Look, Psalms and Ecclesiastes, they both read, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. David proclaimed, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceits. He also said, the poison of vipers is on their lips. The psalmist spat. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Isaiah bemoaned. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace, they do not know. And the psalmist cried, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jew or Gentile, we are all under sin. Law or no law, we are all accountable before God. We have no excuse before the supreme judge. We will wait in silence in the barrister, each waiting to be judged according to our righteousness. We who have had the given law since the ancient times and those who knew it and feared it since times before will have less excuse before God. We who knew what is good and just are going to be held to a higher standard than those who didn't. Let that weigh on your conscience. Some of you probably are still unconvinced. I'm used to that. You may ask, how do we know that God is righteous if not through this given law? How can we believe in this righteousness if we are all living under sin? God's law is obvious to those with open eyes. God has further shown it in the living faith of Jesus. The atonement achieved on the cross is freely given to all peoples, whether they have followed the given or the natural law. The sin of this world persists and will do so until the proper moment when all things are made right. Our living faith in Jesus will then be proved and justified. There is no place for boasting that you are Abraham's then. The given law and the natural law are both being upheld. The two branches of God's people, the circumcised and uncircumcised, have been brought together beneath Jesus at the foot of the cross. Both are right. Both are good for you, for me, as long as you are engaging them in faith living. At one time, 
The Jews' given law may have been better, but now they are equal before God. Consider Abraham, father of our people, whose blood runs in your and my veins. Was he righteous because he followed the law? Of course not. The given law wasn't yet given. As the Torah says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's living in God, faith, I'm sorry, Abraham's living faith in God is why he was given grace and counted as righteousness. It's not because he followed the rules. Far from it. We know Abraham's story. He broke all the rules and a few extras. Righteousness is not the payment for full for rule following. It is the response to living faith. It is not bound by the given law. As David say, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The blessing is not limited to those who have been marked as Abraham's. Again, consider him. Was he called righteous before or after circumcision of the body? Before. Before his heart was, I mean, sorry, his heart was circumcised first and then his body. If righteousness was only given by blood, which is passed down from generation to generation, then considering our history, none of us would be righteous. They failed over and over and over again. The given law could not be kept. But that was its purpose. The purpose was that we would fail at it, though we were to try to live it faithfully. Because, as I said and say and will say again, righteousness is not earned through rule-following. It is given because of living faith. Because of this, we are seeing the promise to Abraham being fulfilled in these days. God said to him, I have made you a father of nations. Look around. Look around in your space at your fellow Christians. We are all his children. Jews and Gentiles of Christ from every corner of this huge, magnificent empire. Be like Abraham, unwavering in faith despite all of the facts seeming to discredit what God can do. For after all, Sarah and he had a child born in old age. And the ancient promise is being fulfilled because of that living faith. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised for our justification. Thank you. It's easy when reading this to kind of get caught up in this conversation that's happening with Paul as he's kind of yelling 
arguing, fighting with his fellow Jews. And see, all this is just about them. It's just about the Jews. And we are all basically Christian Gentiles now, right? We deal with the same problem. This concern that we know the right way and we think other Christians don't. But Paul reminds us, and it's not us, up to us to really decide this is the right way and this is the wrong way, but to work on living righteously ourselves and to work on being one with our brothers and sisters, even if we don't agree with them on all things, that we all have the same base, that we are all here because we're not perfect, but at the foot of the cross, we are made. We are made his. We'll continue this walk with Romans. As Paul builds his magnum opus of theology. As he continues to direct us from 2,000 years ago with the same problems that we encounter. I was going to say outside this church, but even inside. Inside even our families. Let's work on this. On accepting. Let's work on opening our arms and realizing that we are all brothers and sisters, that we are all children of Christ. Amen.